buddies, fellow Franco fans, lovers of Uncle Jess, lovers of the macabre, lovers of film, lovers of cult cinema, all those I am one of as well. It is I, your host, Jason Rudy, and I come to you this evening from Desperate Visions Productions, a Sacramento, California-based filmmaking group that I founded back in 2007 and uh, working on editing Lady Hyde at this time and uh, working on editing Emmanuel in Sin City and I still have plans to do two more films by the end of the year. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can uh, tackle those. We've got uh, times running out of course by the end of the year so uh, we'll see what we can do but uh, yeah four is the target if I hit three, I'm cool. Four, but definitely is the aim. But um, speaking of aiming and targets, uh, my aim for you, uh, episode 49 is the aim, and the other aim is film 49. 49, 49. So with that, we bring you How to Seduce a Virgin, also known as Plaisir et Trois, Pleasure for Three. Uh, this is made in France, 1973. Original theatrical title in country of origin, Plaisir et toi. I'm sorry, Plaisir et toi. Pleasure for three. Uh, let's see. Of course, I bring you all this from Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1 by Stephen Thrower. Uh, alternative titles, Plaisir, and of course the number three, French theatrical poster, uh, Italian theatrical pl- poster, Pleasure with Three, Placier et Tre, and then we have French working title, The Unsatiated, number two, La Une Suaves, number two, and then we have the shooting title, um, Beyond the Grave, Outer Tumba, and uh, Outre Tumba, shooting title afterlife uh, production company on this Comptour Francois de Film Production of Paris and theatrical distributor Comptour Francois de Film Production out of Paris uh, shooting dates from April 9th of 1973 uh, played France in February 20th of 74 and uh, French visa issued February 27th 74 Uh, Rejected by the BBFC on May 8th of 74, and then played Belgium-Brussels January 30th of 1975, and got the regional UX release in the UK of June of 75. France, uh, running time is 72 minutes, and the UK is 64 minutes. For this film, uh, the cast is Miss Alice Arno. I believe this is her first um, Jess Franco film, and she goes on to star in many of, of, of his films. But I believe this is her first one. And she plays uh, Martine de Bressac. And then we have Robert Woods, um, which I think he was in the last film. Let me see real quick. Uh, if he was in... Uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, he was in... Um, he was in The Silence of the Tombs. Because I don't think he was in uh, Sinner... Go through the notes. Yeah, no, he was in. Um, he was in Silence of the Tombs. Robert Woods. 
No, maybe in uh, Orloff? Okay, yeah, no. He's not in this one, but uh must have been in Orloff he was in. Let's see, Robert Woods. Yeah, Robert Woods, okay. So this is uh, Robert Woods' second film, and he goes on to star in quite a few of Jess Franco films as well. And yeah, so uh, Alice Arno plays Martine de Bressac, and Robert Woods plays Charles de Bressac. Uh, Howard Vernon is in here, the mighty Howard Vernon, of course, uh, returns after taking a break uh, during Sinister Eyes of Orloff, which it would have been cool to have him, of course, as Orloff, but that was the last episode. But in this one, he plays Matthias, the housekeeper slash chauffeur. Uh, Tanya Brasseur plays Cecile. Alfred Bellu plays Melu the gardener. And uncredited, uh, Lena Rome plays Adelaide. This is her second film. Uh, her second film on, of course, Relax Baby was never released, so her second on-screen appearance. Uh, Jacqueline Blanc- Blanco plays Martine's psychiatrist, and Jaime Picas plays Celine's father. Credits, Jess Franco, of course, is the director, as always. Uh, screenplay and adaptation by Jess Franco. Dialogue by Alan Petit. Uh, director of photography, Gerard Bessard. Editor, Gerard Kikon. Music, uh, Daniel Janin and Robert Hermel. Uh, producer, Robert Di Nessel. Uh, continuity, Simon Legolion. Still photographer, Howard Vernon, of course, as Mario Lippert. Um, which is funny, he had, Howard Vernon was still photographer, and uh, so Ramon Ardid was on, uh, must have been doing something else, because Lena's on set as well. But Howard Vernon is rank above all them. So, assistant editor Patrick DeConnick, film stock Kodak, Kodak, always say Kodak, Kodak Eastman Color Lab, uh, GTC Sound, Cordis Michael Kondo. Uh, production notes: On April 9th of 1973, shooting began on Placia et Toi, also known as How to Seduce a Virgin. One of the highlights of Franco's sojourn with French producer Robert Di Nessel. It began life as a script written by film journalist Alain Petit from a treatment handed to him by Franco. Petit was already a fan and thrilled to be working with a man whose work he adored. He gleefully created a story based on his preference for horror of a fantastical nature. Petit recalls that Franco initially tried to interest Spanish producer José María Fracois in the script, but Fracois anticipating trouble with the Spanish censors cordially declined a wise decision because there's no way the film's erotic elements could be toned down without ruining the story. Sex and cruelty are integral to the narrative. Franco and Foucault would instead work together on El Otro Lado de Especial. Franco then turned to Robert de Nesselle and Comteur Francois de film production. However, de Nesselle disliked the fantastical content and asked for the film to be slanted toward the real world. Elements of Petit's original intentions survive, however, in the mysterious cellar of victims frozen between life and living death like participants in some malign game of statues. <clears throat> Review Another of Franco's free adaptations of the Marquis de Sade, How to Seduce a Virgin, earns a exalted place in the director's pantheon thanks to its seductive portrait of immorality 
and the script's unsentimental commitment to the libertine's point of view. Considering the film was shot in under two weeks, awesome. The performances are focused and believable, and the technical execution admirable. Maybe the pace slows down here and there after an action-packed first half hour, but the film regains its mojo for a satisfyingly wicked climax. The opening scenes subvert the genre cliches of the innocent but unstable woman returning home from the asylum. Countless potboilers began in this vein with the subsequent tale, showing malicious acquaintances or relatives trying to drive the heroine back into the loony bin. However, we quickly understand that the woman in this case is far from fragile. Martine is rich, happy, confident, commanding the respect of her staff and the groveling adoration of her live-in-love slave. Clearly, she is not a habitual victim. What follows as Martine descends the modernist staircase to her devastatingly chic 1970s basement and strolls around, checking her statues, human beings frozen in positions of agony, chained to the walls and poised against pillars, is fabulously eerie and unnerving. The explanation for Martine's menagerie, a paralyzing drug, is withheld until the climax of the film. To begin, we're not sure if the bodies are dead or alive. They look like what they really are, living people holding a pose. As such, the seller of silent torture becomes a sadoerotic dream space in which seemingly impossible fantasies of cruelty and control are possible. Having checked that her collection remains intact, Martine glides down the seafront in her chauffeured limousine, cruising for hookers to the accompaniment of a fabulously crude and sleazy guitar riff, which seems to celebrate the unrepentant wickedness. A lunatic discharged from the madhouse, who immediately goes on the rampage. It's the kind of story we're shocked to read in tabloid news reports, but in the erotic economy of Franco cinema, Martine is virtually a heroine, a Juliette in his Sedean scheme. Picking up a cynical hooker called Rosa, but what does it matter? Martine invites her back to do some modeling. Scarcely believing her luck, the hooker settles in for some easy money, but she signs her own death warrant by moaning about the boredom of holding a pose. Irritated, Martine takes the foolish woman down to the cellar and subjects her to a good whipping before making her hold a pose for a very long time as part of her sculpture collection. The modeling sequence boasts a telling erotic detail. When sketching her victim-to-be, the first thing Martine actually draws is the hooker's vaginal slit. Not for the last time in cinema, reveal, Franco reveals himself as first and foremost a pussy hound. That's funny. Um, Alice Arno 
Harrier proves herself one of Franco's best performers. She has an almost doll-like face, smooth and feline, suggestive of the Far East with a pixieish tinge to her turned-up nose and a calm yet cruel set to her mouth. In fact, there's a trace of old Hollywood in Miss Arno's features. One can imagine her in a classic film noir or a tears behind the glitter showbiz tale from the 1940s. The only major player, I'm sorry, the other major player is Robert Woods as Charles de Brassac. Franco introduces him beautifully as Martine whips the scheming Rosa. Her gaze and ours aligns with a corpse sculpture swathed in shadows from behind which Charles emerges. Woods is the epitome, hero of the swinging 70s sleazeball, rich, casually attired, woefully confident, I'm sorry, wolfishly confident, with a cold sliver of threat behind the charm. He's the Ted Bundy pretending to be a continental fashion photographer and clearly drives Martine crazy with lust. The third party referred to as the original French title is Cecilia, the new and youthful subject of the couple's lusts. However, unlike Arno and Woods, actress Tania Brasilia seems miscast, not to be ungallant, but she's an unconvincing anjouin, being a little older than the role requires. Uh, Brasilia doesn't lack feminine charm, but Franco can't quite sell her as a naive young girl, which robs the twist ending of some of its power. Among the supporting players, dwarf actor Alfred Bellew is truly memorable as a weird old gardener obsessed with a terrible experience years ago in which he witnessed a flailing bishop whose head cracked open like an egg, like an egg. The story is apparently based on a reminiscence of Bunnell's. Matthias the butler, played by Howard Vernon, never gets involved in the sex, but knows everything that's going on and fits smoothly in and out of the background. Quite why the character is left unexplored is a puzzle, especially when Vernon could have easily have given more. Perhaps he was a late addition to the story. Most importantly of all, Lena Romay makes an immediate impression in her first major role for Franco, playing Martine's mute, retarded sex slave, Adelaide. A standout scene has Martine and Charles making out, grunting and moaning and talking dirty while Adelaide frigs herself against them, adding retarded little squeals to their wild moans in what has to have been the weirdest dubbing session of 1973. Lena's crazy little girl act smearing lipstick chaotically onto her lips further adds to the uncomfortable black comedy of this erotically out of control household yes i did say comedy in true sedian style how to seduce a virgin can be very funny indeed i treasure the scene in which charles and martine both nude spy indolently on the girl next door from an upstairs window caressing each other as they do so suddenly the comedy young I'm sorry suddenly the comely young treasure walks out of the gate and heads off down the street with her parents in a flurry of pants and shirts and cries of vita 
<clears throat> Vita Vite, the libertines dash outside, arriving on the pavement of in such haste that they must quickly calm themselves, straighten their clothes, and control their demeanor to appear as simply two young lovers out for a stroll. What makes it so funny is that we're watching two icy sophisticates who see themselves above the common herd, forced to the ex- forced by the extremity of their desires into ungainly comical behavior that would not look out of place in a Three Stooges film. The overriding theme of How to Seduce a Virgin is erotic obsession and voyeurism. Martine and Charles bring themselves to the boil, spying on Cecile through binoculars. Later they watch surreptitiously through a crack in the door as Cecile is seduced by Adelie, all while the while whispering their lust to each other, winding each other up into greater and greater sadistic anticipation. To illustrate this, Franco musters some compelling compositions, not least when Wood stands behind Arno, fondling her breasts as she peers through the binoculars, an image that conflates two of them into one sex-crazed hydra, supplanting the isolation of voyeurism with the erotic thrill of folie et doigt. If a problem shared is a problem halved, then a pleasure shared is a pleasure doubled. Franco reveals in his formula, sadistic male-female couples proliferate in his cinema. However, in a reversal that may induce whiplash in unwary viewers, our own voyeurism is both parodied and punished. When Charles catches Malou, the gardener spying through the bathroom window on Cecile and Martine, he picks up the diminutive hunchback and hurls him to the ground. Then, as the camera peers through the window at him, Charles turns and stares directly back with a look of dawning incredulity and hostility. It's a petrifying moment that challenges the audience, bruising our own voyeuristic displacement and safety. Charles, of course, is a voyeur par excellence, but the voyeuristic gaze is a jealous gaze. With an illusion of ownership and control, his angry glance, sorry, his angry glare down the lens of Franco's camera makes the point quite clear in a way that challenges our own easy pleasure. Jealousy and voyeurism are so insidiously interlinked in the story that the title Plessia et Toi, Pleasure for Three, becomes ironical. This is a film in which the harmonious distribution of energies in open relationships is fraught with difficulty, even for out and out sickos. Despite plotting to seduce and kill Cecile, Martine is still jealous when Charles fucks the girl. She's even jealous when Cecile makes it with Adelie. In this, Franco adheres to the conventional formula in sex films of the 70s, namely, Troilism means trouble. It's a little wonder why the film was originally banned in the UK. It's about voyeurism as a sadistic component of sexuality. Hardly a comforting theme for a censorship board obsessed with protecting the public from the harmful effects of pornography. In How to Seduce a Virgin, Franco seems positively to revel in the idea about the voyeuristic tease that leads inexorably to sadism. While the explicitness is well within modern tolerances, 
Franco adopts it. I'm sorry. Franco adopts an often, an often, a authentically, authentically Sedean philosophy outlook that dispenses with social obligations and morality. That this is his most sophisticated solution to the challenge of adapting thought. The point to the point is not to flood the screen with imagery that would get the film banned in every country in the world. Real subversion is to make the film that does what censors fear all sex films do, to arouse in the viewer a sense of the erotic possibility when one's own gratification is the foremost principle. The final scenes sound that the only... Sorry, the final scene sound the only note of caution, as a key character is suddenly portrayed, proving that bonds forged in selfish pleasure provide no basis for trust. On the one hand, it means that the story has a moral after all. You can't trust a libertine. On the other hand, if you're a selfish loner with no need for company, affection, or approval. The world really is your squirming oyster. That's a great motto. So, yeah, that's really good. I like how that wraps up. So, proving that bonds forged in selfish pleasure provide no basis for trust. On the other hand, it means the story is moral after all. You can't trust a libertine. On the other hand, if you're a selfish loner with no need for company, affection, or approval, the world really is your squirming oyster. So, yeah. Next time you're by yourself, alone, thinking of that, keep that in mind. I know I will. Cast and crew. How to Seduce a Virgin and its back-to-back sibling, Countess Perverse, star Alice Arno, a strikingly beautiful actress who would work on a total of 12 Franco films in the 1970s. Always very appreciative and positive about Franco, she adored his approach to the industry, telling an interviewer from Sex Stars System in 1975, I dream of being able to spend my time filming consistently, like just Franco. Last year, for example, I filmed for two months out of 12. I'm sorry, I filmed for 10 months out of 12. It was great. The last year in question was actually 1973, in which Arnold appeared in nine Franco films. She then had this to say about his working methods. In the case of Jess Franco, he explains beforehand what should be done. There are no problems, no surprises. And then, if there's no direct sound, he helps by providing guidance. Where to place your hands, where to kiss the girl, I'm sorry, whether to kiss the girl, how to caress, because he knows. And this is somewhat true for all filmmakers. They have a little cinema inside their heads. Of course, sometimes they let me do what I want, but it is always remains linked to that plan. Music. The main musical theme here, unfamiliar from other Franco films of the time, is a sleazy and menacing piece for electric piano, organ, bass guitar, and percussion. Loose exploratory with an almost comically sinister quality as the bass glissandros up and down. Elsewhere, grimy fuzz guitar adds the resequite the resequit aura of sleazy decadence in an oddly pitched melody played on a recorder or pipe suggests both the unbalanced derangement of the sadistic Martine and traumatized Adelaide and the childish self-gratification guiding Martine and Charles. 
locations. Shot in Portugal and the Canary Islands on the, some of the same locations as the sinister eyes of Dr. Orloff. Uh, UK theatrical release. Plessia Atois was submitted to the BBFC as How to Seduce a Virgin in the spring of 1974 and met with a flat rejection. However, at the time, if a film was banned by the BBFC, it was still possible to ask for a local X from individual council authorities. <clears throat> Thus, in 1975, the Cinchenta chain submitted the film to London's then-governing body, the Greater London Council, for consideration. They succeeded. How to Seduce a Virgin was granted a number of local certificates and entered distribution in the summer of 1975, receiving a Continental Film Review photo feature in July. In a minor claim to fame, footnote, it was one of three sex films viewed by the Christian moral reformer Lord Longford in 1975 during a short-lived fact-finding mission that was little more than a prelude to his campaign against pornography. Longford reportedly saw Erotic Inferno and Hot Acts of Love at the Astral Cinema in Soho and later How to Seduce a Virgin. According to contemporary sources, he walked out of the latter, a testament perhaps to the film's dark erotic charge. Either that or Hot Acts of Love had already, as it were, finished him off. Let's see. Connections. Let me move this book here a little bit. And the mic here, of course. Alright, the story is another loose variation on the Desaad's philosophy in the bedroom. See also Eugenie, the story of her journey into perversion. With Arno in a role and, and a, analogous to the books Madame Saint Ange, Boussier as the Eugenie character and Woods as the de Marvel. Franco takes the skeleton of the sod story in which two older lovers, brother and sister in the book, seduce a young girl for the purpose of her immoral education while ditching the book's Dolomont's character removing the attacks on Eugene's mother, an element on Saad's original story that has proven beyond the pale even for Franco, and adding the theme of betrayal. This latter element, whilst not in the original story, may have been suggested by two conflicting passages in philosophy in the bedroom, which are juxtaposed without comment by Saad. In one, the character of Dolomont's announces to Madame Saint-Ange and Merville. Wolves are safe in their own company, as the proverb has it, and trivial though it may be, tis true. My friends, dread nothing from me ever. I'll perhaps have you do much that is evil, but never will I do any to you. Yet just a few paragraphs later, when encouraging Eugenie to embark upon the murder of her mother, Dolmont warns her, Permit me a few words of advice, which, before you act, are of the utmost necessity. Never let your secret go out of your mouth, my dear, and always act alone. Nothing is more dangerous than an accomplice. Let us always beware of even those whom we think most clearly attached to us. One must, wrote Machiavelli. 
either have no Confederates or dispatch them as soon as one had made use of them. It is not unusual for Saw to contradict himself. Indeed, the attentive reader, confronted with so much that is incendiary and provocative in the man's writing, may find himself or herself aroused to seek out inconsistencies. Such is the urging and recklessness of the arguments being unfolded. It's striking that Franco should have honed in on such a moment in Sod, using it as an unsuited invitation to fuck the text and add his own variations. Certainly, it proves that Franco was a careful and dedicated reader of Sod, and not just inclined to flip through the text looking for the naughty bits. The notion of bodies as art, objects frozen in postures of agony, links this film to the more comedy. I'm sorry. <clears throat> the notion of bodies as art, of uh, uh, the notion of bodies as art objects frozen in postures of agony, links this film to the more comedic sadist erotica, and also to the fantastical stage shows of the diabolical Doctor C and Vampiros Lesbos. The theme stretches back through Giorgio Ferroni's Mill the Still. Mill of the Stone Women, 1960, Roger Corman's A Bucket of Blood, 1959, Andre de Toth's House of Wax, 53, and the gruesome tableau variants in Irving Pitchell's Ernest B. Schoenstack's The Most Dangerous Game, 1932, and one I'm adding that he didn't write about, uh, The Black Cat, Edward G. Ulmer, with Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi in uh, Boris Karloff's uh, Underground Crypt. You see the uh, daughter and wife of the hair raised up in the in the tomb. So, um, yeah, that's another one. Uh, other versions, the English language theatrical print, How to Seduce a Virgin, has never been available on video or DVD, although Mondo Macabre released the French cut with the UK theatrical title in deference to its eye-catching self, shelf potential. Buyer beware, a French video release of the William Grief Chestnut Death Curse of Tartu used the Presse Etoile shooting title Outre Tombe and lists just Franco as director on the cover. Oddly, despite the existence of poster artwork, I could find no evidence of the Italian release Picchiere Etre in newspaper listings. Um, so, yeah. Um, here in America, as of this recording, there is only the DVD that's out of print, which I own, uh, from Mondo Macabro, and it's, uh, yeah, the title of How to Seduce a Virgin, and it looked like it came out in, uh, 2013, um, and it has a brand new transfer, interview with writer Alan Petit, introduction, introduction by critic Stephen Thrower, and, uh, optional subtitles. And this says uh, 87 minutes on this one. I'm not sure if that's right. Uh, French with optional English subtitles. So yeah, I'll be watching that tonight or tomorrow for the review portion. Um, yeah, that's one thing I didn't mention, actually. This is um, um, a Zoom interview, a Zoom review I'm doing with uh, Miss Colleysini again from Los Angeles. And she'll be joining me on this episode to review... How to Seduce a Virgin with me. So, yeah, it'll be a fun interview with us um, talking Jess Franco again. Uh, let's see. It's getting late here, so I'm probably going to wrap this up. Um, if you want to find us, get a hold of us, write us any emails or whatever, you can please do so at francoobserver at yahoo.com. 
You can find our uh, pages on Instagram and Facebook under the Franco Observer Podcast. And, of course, our mission statement is praise and in memory of Jess Franco, bringing the name and films of Jess Franco to new eyes and ears. Uh, please download the episodes. Please subscribe to the podcast. Um, please share. Please rate the episodes or rate the show, however that works. Uh, please tell your friends and help us get new listeners to the podcast. I would appreciate it because uh, next will be episode 50. So that's like, plus we got the bonus episodes that don't count. So, yeah, you got about like 70 hours maybe or something of Franco talk. So definitely uh, a lot of Franco talking to keep you going on those long trips or wherever you are. Um, I'm very thankful and appreciative of my audience. We have a truly worldwide audience for the show. Um, I got to go back again and look at our numbers, but, uh, yeah, we, we have a really good following. Uh, I'd say about half the audience is the United States and the other half is the rest of the world. So to me, that's really awesome. And I thank you every week for downloading the show and digging it. Um, and yeah, please, uh, let me know what you think about the show and, uh, let me know if you listen and, uh, I'll try to start putting names together and, uh, saying hello to you all on the shows um as a thank you for your um listening to all that so all right well it's late here and i'm rambling so i will say buenas noches and listen to the review portion with myself and miss colicini from los angeles california home of the doors with the doors Welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions, and I am joined today via Zoom with a recurring guest friend of mine, Miss Kali Sini from Los Angeles, California. Hello, Kali. Hi. And we're here today to talk about film 49 on this episode 49. The film in question is How to Seduce a Virgin. Um, which is a very clever title, also known as Pleasure for Three, which is the original title. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read the brief synopsis and then um, talk to Kali about the film. Uh, let's see. Wealthy sadist Martine de Brezac is discharged from a mental institution by her too trusting psychiatrist. Back home, she greets her mentally disturbed dwarf hunchback garter, Melou, her traumatized female sex slave, Adelie, and her psychopath husband, Charles. In the cellar, Martine keeps a collection of human corpses turned into sculptures and posed in postures of agony. After picking up and murdering Rosa, a prostitute, Martine and Charles hire a seafront apartment to spy on their next young victim, Cecile, daughter of a rich diplomat who lives across the street. Soon, Cecile is a regular visitor to the Brissacs' home. However, despite regular sexual liaisons, pleasure for three proves to be an unreliable formula. So, Kali, what did you think of the film? I love this one. It's absolutely one of the, my favorites. I, I, it just is enchanting and, and funny and sexy. and Yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> 
Yeah, uh, I really agree with the sexy part. Like, to me, this is one of the most erotic um, Franco films that I've watched so far. Because I think with this one, he starts turning the corner and goes, his scenes last a little longer and they're, they're more, not graphic, but they're a little more in length and they step up the quoting a little bit. And yeah, I was like, wow, wow, wow. There, there's some really amazing sequences in this film. I uh, really enjoyed it as well. Um, how many times have you seen this film? Uh, this is just my second. Oh, um, wow. Okay. Might be third. Um, but yeah, the, all the exhibitionism and voyeurism and stuff, it, it's, that's pretty, that's, that's the fun thing when the camera's watching the person, watching the people and they're, uh, there's so much of that in it. That's, that's, that's good stuff. Yeah, it's funny because like lately now I've been, I, I had that put in my head by um, listening to Stephen Thrower talk about fear, desire. And in this film, I believe is desire is the element. But it's also the desire of other people's fear. Like they get off on scaring people and the, the fear of the frozen in that, the thing of agony and to, and to revisit that fear all the time. So there is a desire in this and it's all about the desire, but also the fear quotient is a big thing. Cause like one thing I'll talk about before I go into other stuff is when the husband first greets his wife, he sneaks up behind her and scares her and he, and he gets that, that little sensation of scaring her for his own benefit and his own thrill of, of scaring her. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, cool. That's their relationship. And in the end, it turns into that big time of him scaring her, you know. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, it was really, really clever when I caught that. But uh, I, I definitely like that a lot. Um, I'm going to hit the Franco list first and kind of go over that because uh, we did it last, last time. And a couple things I noticed right off in the beginning of this, it starts off with a body of water right away. You see palm trees. You see boats on land when she's leaving the psychiatrist's office and Howard Vernon's driving her. You see all that right away. Um, you see uh, there's no jungle sound effects. There are chained up people later, of course, uh, frozen. Um, number seven, dance scene on stage stripping. There's some really great stripping scenes in this. Some of my most favorite, especially Alice Arno's stripping scene is fucking magnificent with the red light, of course. That's another one. Um, jazz music there is in this excessive zooms not a lot I don't think out of focus shots unfortunately there are a few um, number 12 mirror shots there's some really cool amazing mirror shots in this uh, about four or five that I counted uh, number 13 mind control theme most definitely uh, number 14 magic tongue scenes not necessarily although Lena is in this and Lena looks so goddamn amazing in this film this is like baby Lena She's like so young she's and just, well. yeah. <laughs> she, I like. She's so funny in this film. Yeah, yeah. she's and, and it and it's cool watching her. Like it's like as he's introducing her, it's like in this she has no lines. She just has her sounds and stuff. But it's cool. It's like you see her moving up the ladder of like you know on screen time and things. Because if last film she's just the girlfriend of of the guy in the band, sweet. And she's cute and stuff. And in this, she has more dialogue. Or not dialogue, but she has definitely more screen time. And she gets nude. That's when she'd be very first. Like, ah, 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 yeah. And it's like, it, 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 what it makes me think of is like, you know the Tropic Thunder thing when they say never go full retard? Right. Like, Nina does that and still is awesome, which is like, <laughs> I yeah like, i know it's really i'm curious what they're talking about the post-production looping on this would be you know her in the studio just making sounds in the microphone <laughs> um, yeah, i was gonna tell you actually you should add something to your um your checklist yeah uh, 
the gold chain around the waist. I noticed that. Yeah, uh, not all of them, but a lot of the gals do wear that, and maybe about every five or six films you catch that. Like I, I used to write that in my reviews on Letterbox was like the gold chain again, the gold chain. I'm surprised it's like taking me this long to mention that to you, because I, 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 I love the gold chain around the waist. It's super hot. I love that. That's like a little signature detail of Franco. Yeah, I think this might have been one of the first films I think I've seen it in for that era, because he uses it a lot after this. A lot. You see, uh, Collie Hansel wears it later, and uh, a few other gals ever have that gold chain around their waist, that body chain. Um, okay, so let me get back to the list. Uh, 15, we have Red Light, definitely during the strip strip sequences, which is a great sequence. Uh, 16, sheeps, Sheepskin, no, but Masturbation with the sea item. No sea items, but definitely this film had a lot of masturbation. I, I was like, <laughs> amazed at how much masturbation was in this film. Uh, number 17, Mad Scientist. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's like her basement with the statues could almost be like a mad doctor's lab. And they have that formula that turns people into statues. So I don't know. To me, that's almost like a push, uh, 18 fish tank shots. No 19 talking animals, parrots. No, uh, 20 in credits. Yes or no. Yes. 21 handwritten note. I didn't see a handwritten note in this. Unfortunately, uh, no spiral staircase shot, no inept cops. And now belly chain. Yes. We have the belly body chain on this one. So that's the list of 24 items in the Franco universe. So, um, okay. So I guess um, I'll just kind of knock out some stuff that I seen and we can kind of talk about it if you want. Maybe go out and knock it out that way. Yeah. Like you're talking about um, voyeurism. Voyeurism's huge in this film. You see a lot of voyeuristic stuff. You see the wife with binoculars a lot. You see the um, Milou, the gardener sneaking in you have us as voyeurs watching you have the husband and wife watching the daughter across the street a lot of watching and, and observing and stuff you know yeah i mean even when he finally fucks her and alice watches with just searing hate that's my yeah. favorite <laughs> yeah because you see her watching it and she starts like going and you see because What's weird is like, okay, seeing these out of order now, I seen cries of pleasure with you before this, and that came yeah. after this, although a lot of that is this because they're both um, philosophy of the boudoir, or is that the, or philosophy of the bedroom, uh, the, the Saad yeah. novel? That is the same, um, the same story. Yeah, because the woman comes home from the mental institution, and there's a plot with another person to kill the other person they're with. But in this one, instead of the two women, it's the man and the woman switch with the wife. And the other one is the two women kill the man, you know, because that's why I thought this was going to end. I thought the two women were going to get together and kill the man, but it was the man that flipped on the wife. I was like, oh, okay. Franco changed it here, you know. One all along, scaring her right from the start until the final horror show. Yeah. And yeah. yeah and uh reading about this it's really cool because when they wrote this they wanted to go more into the basement and show more of that stuff but uh oh. the producer toned it down and wanted to be more realistic so they have just that few little sequences where they go down in the basement and they see all the statues and the people and that you know it's kind of good with the less is more because it you know it leaves something to the imagination you know like when you just see that little bit of of, of the frozen girls kind of, uh, you know, you, you, your mind wonders like, how did they get there? What was each girl's story? And, and, you know, what else is down there? Cause there's still kind of these dark corners everywhere. And, you know, and, and yeah, I love the way that's all shot down there too. Oh. Like when, you know, 
that whole mansion is probably my favorite location of any Franco film. I just, that house is so fucking amazing from the exterior. You walk in, there's like a, a hill cave inside. There's like glass, all of the walls, there's cool staircases. And then down below, there's the whole, um, German expressionism light coming through the, the door and the stairs coming down. Everything's touched at like a Dutch angle and you go down and all the statues and it just, that, that house is so beautiful, you know? So yeah, the amazing. red light behind the, on, on, the, on the staircase, like there's a red light under each Oh, yeah, yeah. All that and things going oh, up. and That was so well done. So pretty. Yeah, yeah, that house is fucking amazing. It's so beautiful. All those glass. And then later on when they do the strip tease, when they turn on that red light, I was like, yeah, the red light. They turn on the red light and that whole place takes on a whole different feel with that red light all over all the glass and the staircase. And that place is amazing, man. That, that house really helps make that film really cool that locations also the way they shoot it as far as like when she first brings her first victim down there in the, in the beginning yeah. and uh you know they have like the the camera shows that the one dead girl on the on the table just kind of lying there like while the woman is getting you know whipped and assaulted and all that and, and it's but she's still frozen and i mean you know you know she's really alive so it's just cool like how they kind of make that casual like and there's just that scene of it and then you can see kind of the other frozen bodies in the corners and but it it, it it just makes you wonder how many more bodies are there and like you, you want to know more of that story and yeah it kind of i like the way that they shot everything in a way that it, it just seemed like there was so much more that like that, that they and they were only just showing you a little of the horror and right because if they went into too much of the backstory and they finally in the end when they explain what the drug was then it makes you understand because otherwise you just don't know if you know they're supposed to be dead or if they're alive or if they're real people or mannequins or what but but uh, yeah i'm I'm getting ahead of myself um so yeah so we have that's really cool um uh in the beginning the doctor in the beginning um so in other franco films i noticed she's wearing the white kind of a horn like a, a necklace that kali hansa wears in uh in um uh, how to, in um, either Sinner or how to, or Sinister Eyes of Warloff, she wears a because she has a white horn necklace and a black one, and the gal Alice Arno wears that in here again from the last film. Because I was trying to see what props carry over from the last films, and then later on, after she Alice Arno kills the first victim when she's combing her hair down, she wears the big, big gaudy necklace that Kali Hansa wore when she was whipping the girl in Las Abernales. She wears a big gaudy necklace, which I thought was badass because i'm a big fan of that necklace i i wasn't sure if i was talking it was the same one but yeah i, I noticed that yeah yeah it's a big old thing um so then we have um the first nudity is um four minutes in uh in a flashback sequence when she's being driven home by howard vernon which we always talk about it. either howard vernon has a really big role or he's just like there and in this movie he's just one of the ones that's there i don't think he has any dialogue in this film he just makes little grunt noises or uh-huh or something if that and he just, just goes up. yeah <laughs> yeah he's just the, the driver he cooks he brings the mannequin down later in one of my favorite scenes and uh it's just bizarre but yeah so and you see her have a flashback where she slices a guy and she pulls the razor up and there's of course no blood on the razor but there's blood on the guy which i was laughing because franklin needs to dip the blood in razor or, i don't know but it's always clean so it's funny um uh, and then we have, um, oh yeah, the amazing mansion inside and out. I mentioned that the staircase and the cave walls, the lower half house is really great. Um, 
and uh, they get together and stuff. And we talk about you talk about they picking up hookers and they go out driving in the daytime and they pick up this gal uh, Rosa, and uh, Rosa's uh, there and they bring her in to um, photograph her. She says, "Hey, I want you to model for me." She's like, "Well, I'm not really a model." What's that? To paint, not photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Paint. I'm sorry. Yeah, she wants her to uh, to uh, model for. Her. And so she models her and she starts. Sorry. I love how she starts by drawing her vagina. Like she's already mostly drawn like the boobs are these like these uh, pointy like Madonna boobs, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just like got this little body. And then she just starts with the, the, the very first drawing that we see is her doing the slit of her vagina. And then she starts filling in like the fur around it. And I love that Franco made sure that like he set that up, you know, so yeah. the whole thing was done. He's like, and now you're going to draw the pussy. <laughs> like, that's great. Which is, which if you watch a lot of his films, he'll start with a close up of the vagina and then pull back and show their things later on. So it's kind of interesting that she drew the vagina first. Cause that's what he's most interested in. It's like, okay, this is what we're going to see right first. Yeah. I know he goes right to the last veil. <laughs> Well, that's the first in the dance, the seven veils. Oh, okay. <laughs> they start with a woman's fully veiled, and right. then the, um, the, the, the vagina veil comes off first, and she keeps dancing, and then the rest of the woman is revealed. And oh, that's okay. like the, the intention behind that dance is that, you know, of course that's what you're thinking of most. And instead, it's, it's like instead of going backwards, you know, you're, yeah. you're saying, there we have, you know, this is woman, and then you see the whole woman, and then you love her more. And, and oh, that's awesome. Backwards kind of way yeah. of thinking. I always thought it was the opposite. I thought it was down to the last one. I didn't know it was backwards like that. That's that's totally cool. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think of just as he's always like this. Oh, yeah, yeah. Show you what an amazing chick this is. Like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I say chick in that sentence, but whatever. I mean, yeah, like Lena, you know, she's like a, you know, she, she's she's got so many different people to become, even though you've seen her vagina in so many ways. Yeah. There's so many characters within her that you're going to reveal. No, well, most definitely, yeah. She's so expressionistic with her eyes, and this especially, she's always, her eyes are so big and so, you know, searching of, of, of everything. Um, so we have, uh, oh, yeah. So then we see um, she picks up Rosa, and she takes Rosa down into the basement. She wants to show her, like, and everybody keeps saying, oh, it's so cold down here. And it was funny because you don't see any breath or any steam coming out of the mouth or anything. And I was thinking as a filmmaker, it's cool to have, as a viewer, we're supposed to take what we are shown. And so without having to decorate the set with ice and stuff, you can just have the person go, oh, my God, it's so cold down here. And as a viewer, we have to go, oh, it must be cold there, you know, even though, you know, I'm sure the temperature is the same and this and that. But I just found that funny because each person remarks that when they walk down, like, oh, my God, it's so cold down here. But the other person doesn't sell it or act like it's cold at all or anything, you know, Alice Arno or whoever just like, you know, casually walks down there. Um, so, and then she um, whips her again, the whip with the necklace, and she basically feeds on her fear. Uh, the fear, as we had talked about, the, her uh, desire is this woman's fear, and she sees the fear in her, and she gets off on it, and then turns her into that, and freezes them at that moment of fear, which I guess would be their moment of orgasm or ecstasy to like prolong that in their minds. So they can always have that, you know, yeah, they're all frozen in their terror. Yeah. Brilliant, yeah. And that feeds the libertine of always having that fear that you can feed on off of that person. You know, your past conquest is always there, and you can feed off of that forever. Yeah, it's like, you know? what was the one that we reviewed with um, where it, there was the serial killer who would take a photo of, or, or do a painting or do some kind of art 
of the woman just before she was killed. Um, that's kind of the same concept, right? Yeah, I'm trying to think what that was. Uh, was it a Franco film? Yeah, we, 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 we did it together. It was one of the ones we did. I know, we've done like, this is our sixth now, but. Uh, let's see, it would be it not less than Alley's, not. Uh, sexy Darling. Wow, okay, we'll have to think about it and get back to you because it's not ringing a bell. I mean, it sounds familiar, but I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, it was, you know, like there was, he did all the different kinds of art and, and the woman was coming in to, uh, I mean, I don't want to go into the whole story of it again, but it, there was the guy who, he was a serial murderer and right before he killed everybody, he, um, he either took a, their photograph or he sculpted them or he painted them uh, in the moment just before their death. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of, that was... Um of art of, of, of I mean it's kind of as if like Jess was thinking you know that when you're making a, a horror film or whatever you know you're 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 a, being a voyeur and you're making art of of this murder and so he's kind of being meta about it you know and and making and literally making the murder art yeah that was the one where Jess played the uh security guard right and he went oh yeah that was uh Kiss Me Monster or uh, Sadist Erotica. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was the one adjustment just Kiss Me Monster. Yeah, it yeah, was, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There you go. Yeah, I remember that. That's Erotica, that's the other one. Yeah, so that, that's a, it's a cool concept, you know? Yeah, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, he totally used that concept before of, the, of her being frozen too in the place and he was looking for the person and, and she made like she was a statue and, he, and then she moved and he looked back and yeah, I totally, I totally didn't think about that. I would just think of like Bucket of Blood or like, you know, the Black Cat or those movies where the people are statues. I didn't think about Jess had already done that a few times before, you know. Yeah. Plus he has that fascination too, like uh not to jump ahead, but like with the mannequins the same thing. Like when Alice does her strip later on, uh I thought it was pretty kinky that Howard Vernon brings that mannequin down and it's almost like them putting it in your face that they freeze these people to be mannequins, but meanwhile she's dancing with a mannequin to kinda of like, Well fuck you, like and that's done in um, Vampiros Lesbos as well when she has the, the lady pretend like she's a mannequin on stage and she's stripping with her and taking her clothes off and all that stuff. So, yeah, so I, I totally caught that. I was like, oh, yeah, that's that again. He's just, you know, recreating some of his um, greatest hits, you know, so to speak. Yeah. But, it uh, is really, really voyeuristic, though. I mean, all of that. Like, it's, it's you know, it's that glance back. It's, it's that, like, seeing the – yeah, I, I – just yeah acknowledging that like you know we're all watching horror films because we're creeps basically and, and so that you know, he's kind of you know like kind of like enjoying that and, and and going full throttle with it and just staring that right in the face yeah there's a lot of scenes like that where um milu the gardener is peeking in in the room when the two girls are together and then the guy looks down at them and then of course the binocular shots and then watching everybody and all the voyeurism to the whole thing and then later on them on the couch and putting on shows for each other and that whole thing, which that scene too reminded me of um, um, Eugenie Desaad where they were on the couch and then they had to draw that game where they put papers in and, and Lena or, and then um, Soledad had to get up and strip on the couch and the other girl had to lay perfectly still and they were kissing her. And then remember they kill her and stuff during that scene. And that was because this film is kind of off the same thing that a Eugenie is as well of a man and a woman or in this one, it's a well, brother and sister or a couple. And in Eugenie, it's the father-daughter pair up to try to seduce people or turn them and then kill them. That's kind of the 
same thing as he moves through. So a lot of the sequences in Eugenie were in this as well. I counted that as I went through, but they just took out the mother character and took out certain things and changed other things around, you know, but the same basic framework and, and story idea. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's all like remixes. Yeah. 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 You just take a little bit and change a few pieces and then you got a new product, you know? Um, so we have, uh, let's see, what did I catch? Um, so we have Charles first sneaks up and scares her for his benefit. I mentioned that it was a sign of their relationship, kind of like a kink of fright, uh, the pleasure of, of scaring her to get his, his sensation. Um, and then on their bed, it's cool. They have like a fur, not a sheepskin, but it's like a covered brown fur and they have like cheetah uh, pillows in that. So they kind of have like their animal kind of kingdom kind of bedroom. And uh, along with that, they have Lena as their slave who basically sits around with no underwear on, her knees to her chest and her big, beautiful bush on display. Um, and she, uh, I was kind of back, taken back by her stockings because she had twine like tied around the top of her stockings. And there's a scene where she has it on her elbow after they have sex and she's like drinking a, uh, a Coca-Cola. And I thought it was like um, rug burns on her elbows and knees, but then I realized it was the twine that was kind of like hanging in the shot. Cause I was like, what the fuck's on her knees and elbows, you know, that was part of the rug when they were getting it to her or something, but it wasn't, it was just the twine that was cut up or whatever, you know? Yeah. And her blue dress just like, you know, clung to her with twine or whatever. And she, it's sort of, it almost kind of reminds me like a, a, a women in prison sort of look. I was just getting ready to say that blue smocks like their prison outfit, the blue black yeah. orange, just button up, just open up quick, quick, you know, show it. Yeah. So yeah, totally. That's why I was laughing. Like, there's a prison outfit. She wears that many times, you know, Jeff, Jess definitely likes to um, reuse things over and over. So it's always nice. Um, <laughs> we have, uh, there's a slideshow. There's a cool mirror shot during the slideshow scene when, the husband's talking to his wife about their prospect and he's showing her these slides and there's these cool mirrors behind them. He's kind of like rubbing her, putting his hand between her and kind of like getting her off while they're talking about the woman. And then later on when they're watching her, there's a cool sequence where she's got the binoculars and he's up behind her and he unzips her shirt, starts fondling her boobs as she's got the binoculars. Stephen Thrower said it was almost like a double headed Hydra. It was cool. It's almost like these two heads and these four arms and they're like, you know, the sex monster that they're bringing the woman in. I was like, that's kind of a cool thing because she's focused and he's getting off, getting her off as he's getting off. And it's like, they're all working together in their, in their thing as a, as, as a unit and as a team. So definitely yeah, that's it's very cool. Watching it and knowing, you know, this time that he's gonna, you know, kill her. And, and so really he's, you know, he's feeling her up, like just excited thinking about how evil he is. And yeah, it's, it's, it's great how like, he's just drinking in his like complete, uh, whole, like this is the most cruel thing he can possibly think of doing to anyone. And, and it's, it's the great thing is it's to someone who deserves it. So you're cheering along with him. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Well, this is my first time watching it. So I didn't know that, you know, I thought that, they were just a total swinger couple and he was just a fucking perv that using her to like get what he wants to, you know, which she was, but I didn't know that he was going to kill her when I was first watching it. So I was just seeing them as like, she was the aggressive one and she was the one doing everything. But then you realize she was the, I mean, he's just as evil as she is, you know, but she was the one that was physically hitting the girls with the fucking drug and putting them out and shit, you know? But yeah. um, but one thing that's cool is when she was watching uh, the girl in the bed masturbate, 
uh, next to her bed, she had a, a knickknack of a, a rabbit. And I like rabbits, so I thought that was pretty cool that she can uh, fuck like a bunny. And, of course, rabbits, you know, <laughs> uh, symbolize uh, fertility. And, and that, so it's cool that she was the she was their rabbit. They were hunting her. She was the fertile one. She was the prize, you know. And rabbits are also gateways to the underworld, but I don't think he used it for this uh, sequence, you know, for this part. But definitely had that. Uh, I thought it was a really cool sequence. Um, also, too, I noticed that um, I was listening. I read a interview with um, Montserrat Prouse, and she was in the last few films, uh, but she's not in this one. And I noticed the gal that they go after is almost a um, lookalike for her. The gal that plays uh, Cecilia uh, looks quite a bit like her, like her style of her hair and everything. And she resembles her. And I noticed before I'd mentioned Franco has a certain look that if he doesn't have an actor, he'll get somebody that kind of looks like them. And, <laughs> uh, and I'd read with, uh, and I read an interview was on um, Robert Bonell's uh, I'm in a Franco state of mind site and did had a uh, English translation. And this was from like the eighties or nineties. And she had mentioned that, you know, she worked with Franco for two years and did all of his films. But then when Lena came in during uh, like sinister uh, eyes of Orloff and that, she had a hard time working with Lena because Lena wasn't professional. Um, when it comes to sex, she would get too horny and get too excited and like, you know, really do stuff. And so she and Kali Hansa. So if you notice, Kali Hansa is not in this film either. So Kali Hansa and her stepped back because she said at this time, Franco was starting to make more pornographic elements. And with this film it's definitely a step more toward pornography. I feel where it's more explicit with in longer sequences. And, and to me, I really enjoyed it, but I could tell from Orloff and from Secrets of the Tombs and that compared to this, it is a big jump of, of the explicitness, especially those films had no nudity or very little nudity. And then you had Lost Supernalies and Sinner, which had more, but still wasn't as explicit as this film is with the acts and the extended sequences. So, yeah, uh, yeah it was funny. So I thought that that gal reminded me of a modest prowse and probably she was supposed to play that part but like i said she backed out so he got somebody that kind of resembled her you know yeah and maybe it was more down to to be a little wild yeah <laughs> and, and, and she definitely went with it a lot more and and had that so i was thinking that going well modest wouldn't have done the masturbation sequence and the going down on lena and and the extended stuff that they did go um and also, too, it was funny that um, I thought Lena was going to be killed when she was whipped, but she wasn't. They said, uh, oh, you, you've served your purpose to us. Uh, now we're going to give you your a reward. reward. And then they just, like, whipped the shit out of her. And then I was like, okay, well, that was more like their reward for themselves. But her reward is to give herself to them. Her, her pain is there is is her reward to give the, or, you know, it's like, that's her reward. Cause she's giving. Yeah, I mean, pleasure, well, she's mentally like, in, you know, incompetent. I mean, it's, uh, uh, I mean, she, she, she probably was raised, but my, my perception was just that she probably was like trained by them since she was young, that getting beaten was actually a reward. And she probably actually like thinks that that's like her life and that, you know, that that's what that that's how she's shown a, like attention which you know translates to love to people who are starved for attention you know so that uh, yeah, that's what she would think like at least you know they're she's she's giving me all of her energy or whatever <laughs> and because i mean she looked excited about it like you know she sat down like oh wow this is gonna happen and then it happened and she was just took it like this was you know right like, that's the logical progression no, 
you know, because I mean, obviously, if somebody's whipping you, you, you do have the ability just to stand up and run away. You know I mean? like, it's, it's like... Plus, also, you just saying that to me, where you're saying she probably learned it at a young age and was raised that way, that made me fast forward to cries of pleasure where their maid was um, raped by them when she was younger. And they talk about that, how she was. So he probably had that idea and he um, fleshed it out more in cries of pleasure, gave her more of a backstory. Like, yeah, she was raped when she was a kid by him and then raised. And then that was part of the thing. So, yeah, I, I would totally yeah, agree with you. It's so true. Yeah. In so many ways. Yeah. There's a lot. I was like, Oh, I didn't realize that Lena's character is just like the maid, but the maid talked in cries of pleasure and this and that stuff, but she had the same thing. They, they killed her, but they didn't kill Lena, but that was, kind of thing that's like a more advanced one of those yeah yeah it just kind of takes different 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 paths um yeah then i mentioned them the the drunk on the couch sequence uh was the reprise of the dare scene kind of in um um, eugenie and my favorite see my favorite thing in the whole film was the dance stripping scene um the red light sequence at about 53 minutes in um just everything was so cool on that um each person got to do their act Alice Arno did an amazing strip, strip dance sequence, her energy, how she stripped with, with the, with the mannequin and Howard Vernon walking up in his suit, putting the mannequin down and his face and walking down. And that was amazing. And then Lena getting up and then, and then him bringing the mannequin back down and then Lena going down on the mannequin and kissing the mannequin and falling the mannequin and then laying down and then, the woman coming in and her turn and then the guy just, all that just folded into the next series and series and it built and it was just amazing. That sequence was probably about 10 minutes or whatever, that whole thing. It was just so fucking good and, and just made you watch to see what was going to happen next. And I love the, it's like, to me, that was the Franco vibe because he hit the red light and all everybody started doing their thing and it was just <laughs> total Franco land, you know. Each movie, I find that weird fucking scene that I dig and this was the, the scene that I really, really liked a lot, you know. In the yeah got to have all the dancing and yeah and also one thing i thought was really awesome um if you watch it again look at the mannequin because the mannequin had like a collie hansa wig like style and her face the mannequin looked like collie hansa to me i was like i wonder it's like her, her face in the wig which is really interesting if you go back and just look at it again and keep that in mind and maybe you'll yeah. see what i saw but yeah because especially with her not being in it i was like oh i wonder if i don't know it's just kind of weird so yeah that kind of stuck That's- in my head um, and then we have, uh, yeah, Lena stripping with the mannequin, the fake orgasm. That was awesome. Um, yeah. And you know, of all of his movies, like up to this point, this, this one is probably like the most horny movie I think that he made that I saw. I mean, there's more later on, but like in this time, it was just like, this was a totally sex filled, like really sensual, like exciting film. You know, it, he played up the sex really well and it had a lot of energy too. And it wasn't hokey or flat or. Yeah, I love the of, guy they got for it too. Like I don't know. Robert Woods, yeah, we should talk about him because he plays in like Sinister Eyes of Orloff. He's Lena's boyfriend in that um uh, Davy Brown and he's and he plays like always kind of like a cheesy guy, but in this one he's like a fucking total evil heel. His eyes and his eyes are really good. He's like watching with lust and anger and desire and he has all these different emotions and he's a really good fucking evil sleazy bad guy in this, especially yeah. as it I goes love forward. Him. I think it's great. Yeah, I was like fully believing everything he was doing and into his character. I mean, I, I, I mean, obviously, Alice Arno is one of my favorite. You know, like yeah, she's so good. And the two of them together just had such good chemistry. You know, they both just had that like we are the sadist couple, we are evil, and that you know the 
the girl that they seduce is so innocent and pure seeming and they they it's just such a great energy between all of yeah, them so totally. it's so I, I really this one is one of the best as far as like the characters really like doing all the things i don't know just like being being who they're supposed to be and and you know taking it seriously enough i guess i don't know like the yeah the, yeah i mean his, his acting is just great i love like when he first you know shows up behind the the mannequin and kind of you know scoots out like i mean it was, it's not his first time that you see him but but when she's you know whipping the girl and and he's she's gonna kill this girl and then he kind of comes out from the darkness like he was watching all along and and but the look on his face is just so like like ah just yeah he's almost like a serial killer like he has those looks like you would see him in a play a serial killer in a movie with those expressions that he gives and stuff like watching and shit you know yeah yeah he's spooky and and they they just both have such like a intense energy him and alice they're great there's uh some i forgot to mention earlier uh there's a scene um where uh they pick uh 18 minutes 32 seconds in i think it's uh when they bring home somebody anyway, they, the, the uh, red car, they get in the red car and pull off. Well, you see the reflection of the whole crew in the side of the, of the car. Oh. It's after Howard <laughs> Vernon shines it up and it's real shiny. He like, you see him wiping the car down and they come up, they get in the car and I count like five or six people. You see like somebody sitting, somebody standing, the chairs, the lights, you see it all in the reflection of that red car. So that's another thing about it. 18 minutes, 32 seconds in. If you watch it again, check it out. You'll see the whole crew shooting that scene. It's really funny. <laughs> Um, and then, um, so he anyway, went back to the end again. So one thing that he says when he's with his wife and they're having dinner with the girl and he's trying to teach her and he says a line that I like where she says that she feels guilty for what he says. And he says, there's no guilt in pleasure. And I thought that was almost a good, um, message in this film. Like that's one thing that he's trying to portray. Like that's their philosophy. You know, if it yeah, pleasures you, then there's no guilt in it. So you shouldn't feel that way. That's society. That's morality. And and so on and so forth. Facade 101. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then uh, what I liked is the, so toward the end, when they do the flip on her and they uh, turn the tables on her, I liked the two women's faces, the close-up of their face when Alice Arno is turned. You see like their faces kind of sideways, real close looking at her. And um, Cecilia and um, Leah Romay's character, they, they're kind of like both, tilting their heads and look kind of just watching her as she freezes. You see like yeah. part of a tear in her eye and she can't move, you know, but her eyes move left and right, which is really cool. And, uh, yeah. And then <laughs> you remember all this times you're with me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, it was a good twist. Cause I knew there was a twist, like I was saying, but I thought it was the other way. So it really did fool me. And I definitely liked like, Oh shit. Okay. Wow. He's doing it this way. You know, I thought, the women were going to come out on top, not the man come out on top. That's, you know, that's why I was like, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it's not usually Franco's thing. It is usually the women win. In yeah. The end. Yeah. So it's like, or, or the woman is the actual murderer, which is always like, I always kind of am amused with that in Franco, because in reality, women are very rarely the murderers, you know, it's usually men. I mean, right the number one cause of, of murder is men like, right. by far and wide. Yeah. But yeah. in so many of Franco's films, it's women. It's always the woman, you know, and it's, it's not the woman you'd suspect kind of thing. And so it was, it, yeah, it's kind of like a, it's almost a twist 
it wouldn't normally be as much of a twist if it wasn't Franco. I mean, I guess he wasn't quite at that place in his filmmaking, but it still is like, if you look at his body of work, it's just funny because he usually would have it be a woman. And so for it to be a man is like, oh, oh, wow, it was the guy all along. Unless he viewed himself as that guy, maybe like in his head and like, he gets in like maybe the woman's like the film producer or somebody that's trying to tell him to, what he wants to do. And in the end, he gets to go off with the two young women and, you know, do his thing and be free and, and his whole, you know, I mean, I don't know. Because yeah. a lot of this stuff you see some of him in that and maybe just thinking it through, maybe that was his, oh, I want to kind of end it like this, you know, blah, blah, blah type thing. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it's just great too that Alice like, you know, gets her, her, uh, come up and up and yeah that's like come up and say whatever yeah um because uh you know i mean she's just horrible i mean she's obviously the one who murdered all the women in the basement and it it loves getting off on it and so you don't have any you know sympathy for her at all and and you're just almost like on the opposite man i i think like i had so much sympathy for her she's so strong she's so motivated she gets shit done the guy's a fucking spineless <laughs> wimp. She's the one moving everything around. She's the one pushing the buttons. Yeah, and I was like, so I, I actually felt bad for her, actually. And yeah, so I was, I was kind of the opposite. <laughs> it's like, she, I mean, she's the queen murderer, but yeah, but then it's, it's kind of like as if it's, it's, it's when the servant becomes the master kind of thing because there is that whole scene in the beginning, you know, where she says, "You didn't spend all my money," you know, like you didn't, right. Ruin me, uh, you, didn't you do anything irresponsible? And I was kind of wondering, like, what that scene was about, you know, is when you first watch it, because you're like, you know, why would well, actually that is kind of surprising that, like, a guy, you know, a woman goes off to the mental hospital and and he just, you know, like sits on all of her money and waits for her to come back. He must really love her, which is uh, um, unusual in a relationship like that. You know? Right. <laughs> in relationships, it's based on, you know, Dasadian. <laughs> principles <laughs> so it's, but he was uh, playing the long game so he knew he was just going to save that money later so well that's why he didn't spend it you know he was doing it so that he he, he definitely like he killed her he didn't just leave her in a mental hospital where she might come back and and try to get him or revenge him or something because he knew that wasn't the way to go he knew he had to put her down completely and then he could take it all but so he, he, he was ultra diabolical in the end, you know, this no, like most he, def- but not to unravel that though, but here's the thing. So he goes to the psychiatrist and he says, Hey, you know, she's starting to have these relapses again. And, and he says, well, you know, bring her back. And I thought that sequence was going to br- come in where he would take her back to the hospital and she would stay or whatever. So he basically goes to the psychiatrist and warns him, Hey, she's, she's getting ready to do this and that and stuff. Then he ends up hitting her with the fucking drug and leaving her. So I would think like, and then they take off. So I, I wonder if after a while the psychiatrist would wonder, hey, I wonder if she's going to come in or what happened. They go check out the place and find her body there. I mean, I don't know. I think that guy would get arrested later, but I don't know. Maybe I'm thinking too much through, but I don't know. They just left a lot of empty, I don't know. They just left a lot of evidence, all those bodies and everything there. And they didn't like, kill. Well, there's not even like a door to the downstairs. That always like is the most amusing. I, I mean, I don't know. Lena gave, gave her that key at the beginning. Right. She I goes down the staircase. Downstairs. Yeah. But down the, there didn't seem to be a door down the staircase. I kind of was like, what was the key for? Cause it didn't, I never saw her unlock anything with that key. That no, you there. see the reflection of the like door on the wall of like the kind of cross hatchings of the like it's almost like a uh like a glass door with like you know bars or something you see that on the wall but yeah you, you don't physically see a door you just see the staircase going down you know 
but they imply that there's a door there with the with the light you know yeah but, so yeah. yeah, so I mean they've got that locked. The police won't come in because they're rich. I mean they sil- remember she he said he silenced all the police and all that kind of stuff, and that was part of it. So I, he's probably got his strings. He's going to pull. You know, I believe in this yeah. guy. I think his, his he, he's got a plan. Yeah, because the um, Malou the gardener's still there, so he's so he's hanging out. Oh, we need know? to talk about him and what a weirdo he was. What was his deal? Like he was like, I mean, okay. So he, yeah, so he tells of the story about the bishop. The bishop gets pushed off the roof like 10 years ago, and his head exploded like an egg. There was blood everywhere. He keeps saying that over and over again. Yeah, what was the, like, I kept trying to figure out what is the metaphor? Why does he keep doing that? But he was just, like, telling this crazy story over and over to anybody who would listen. Every time he met up with somebody, he's like, there was this crazy murder and it's like is he is he trying I, what i was trying to figure out is like is he trying to say like this woman is a murderer but he can't and well or, he does later remember he tells the girl when they're out horseback riding hey you need to get out of here don't go in the basement there's you know and he and he tries to tell her that there's that that they killed the people in the basement and stuff and and he warns that girl but then they come riding up on horses but then you realize that she already knew that you know so she was just trying to play along with it which you know as you think about later like oh shit no wonder she had been with him for i guess a year he says or five months or whatever I it guess was it's kind of a plot hole if you think about it because i mean she he was supposed to have been seeing the you know the other girl for over a year right right because that's what he explains at the end and so how would malou not have known that or have met her before you know why would he be warning her then it's kind of silly cause yeah yeah <laughs> Right, I know. Yeah, there's a few things that are just like, I don't know. Yeah, and and was he watching her? Because he said, well, he said that they moved in across the street. He says a certain amount of time he's been watching her and doing this and stuff. But you wonder if like, did she move in that long ago, or did he just say that, or or what's the whole thing? And does he really know her dad? He tries to play it off, and I don't know. It's, yeah, there's a few little things, but if you just go along with it, and you know, yeah, I think it plays itself out. World. Yeah, definitely, definitely. But uh, yeah, and and and. Uh, it's a nice last shot is her face and it says Finn the end, you know, and you see her face like frozen. It's like a good last fucking shot of her. Um, yeah. Alice Arno, man, she's like, this was like her first Franco film she's, she's in and she is so amazing. Her, like I was reading that her face and stuff, she almost looks like a 1930s or 1940s star. Her like features and her porcelain face and her nose and her chin and she has that old Hollywood look to her that I didn't catch until I read it. I was like, oh yeah, she's very she looks like a star. She has that beautiful old Hollywood look to her, you know? Yeah. She's, she's, she's gorgeous. Yeah. She's, I mean, yeah, she's, it's a unique look, but yeah, it's definitely like that old timey kind of, you could see her in some flapper stuff or before that really. But yeah, yeah. She's, she's gorgeous. Yeah. And, and, and she's strong and she's believable. She's not, you know, her strength and her attitude and shit, you believe it, you know, she's almost like Doris Thomas before her and a few of the other women that were like, oh shit, this chick's like, uh, same with Kali Hansa, you know, they have that strength where they come on and you, and you believe it. You don't think they're, they're weak trying to act strong. You know, they're strong and they're, and, and they show it, you know, it's, it's very, very believable to me. So that's one thing I always look for, you know, but yeah, totally. I mean, I think of it like, I mean, I think Lena has a lot of range and stuff, but like, I, I guess I just watched the one um, where she was the in, in the women in prison, where she's the she's she's the um, well, I can't think of the name of the although too many movies to keep track of the names, but she she plays where she's the um, 
the 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 servant of the of the warden and then also she runs like and she's she takes like she's she's the 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 bad the baddie or whatever i don't know oh the one where she tells the chick to lick her lick her culo after she had the 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 trots yeah that's a barbed wire dolls yes yeah um and in that one i mean lena is like really you know you do buy that she's like oh yeah um, and all that. She's but the queen of that cell. Like, when you compare it to like Alice or something, Alice is just so severe and scary, and there's just something more like cold in her that I can never really find in Lena because she just has like too sweet of a nature almost. Well, it's almost like yeah, almost like Alice has just been tough since day one, or or was that way as a kid? Where Lena's more like street tough, and she was more of a survivor, and she has that fire to her. Where Alice is just like. Exactly. Like a fucking tank, you know, she'll just run you over and just keep going, you know. Yeah, she's adapted, but it's like Alice just has that like burning thing within her. She's just, yeah. she's fierce. I don't know. And I mean, I guess I also just always think of her from like Rollins' fascination. That was my first time I ever saw her. And, uh, you know, how you kind of imprint on the first viewing of someone. And in, in fascination, she's so, you know, like diabolical and, and you know, she's 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 out out for blood so <laughs> yeah yeah that's no, awesome but uh yeah so i mean yeah this is this is a good film um i got the uh mondo macabro uh dvd that's like out of print i guess now hopefully they'll put this on blu-ray um it's definitely like like you and i say it's definitely a quality franco film and it's definitely one of his prime periods of shooting um this film he shot in like two weeks he made this which I love hearing those things. And the next film, uh, Countess Perverse, he shot in like five days. So that's wow. more impressive. Yeah. So, 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 the, so this and Countess Perverse together, 17 days. So two films. That's inspirational. <laughs> game, but with Alice Arno hunting you. Yeah. <laughs> and that'll be episode 50. So that'll be a cool film to, to do for episode 50. So yeah, totally. yeah. yeah that'd be awesome. So, all right. Well, uh, do you have uh, like the firing squad? Uh, do you have any final words? Oh um, no, I guess it just I, it's funny actually. I um I, I made a friend last night at a like a move a, a music event, and uh, was I started rambling about and she was asking me about like what's your favorite movie and you know I stuttered trying to figure that out and eventually started of course saying and i love jess franco and she'd never heard of jess franco of course and it's just she was asking what film to begin with and i i was messaging with her today and i told her this one is a good one <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of a i mean I, it has a lot of the characters it's i don't know it's it's i mean i'm not sure it's it's the best one for me to have recommended but i, I just watched it and was kind of like yeah this is actually like <laughs> this is a good example of yeah it's, it's actually a good entertaining film if you didn't know who franco was you could watch it and be entertained by it most definitely well, it's it, it like, has a good pace it's the gateway as far as you said of like when he starts getting sexy times and maybe i shouldn't like throw you know like midnight party at her where it's just constant sex right. and, but then i also kind of don't want to give her like just like some kind of stuff where there's none of that like you kind of want to show her like you know and that this to me was kind of you know there's there's enough like plot and there's enough you know, uh, sexy times and there's a gorgeous scenery and it, it has a lot of the elements that, that yeah, you know, I definitely. Like. And then you realize if you like Frank or not. Yeah. Cause I would say this or maybe center, you know, cause that is a little more mainstream, I would say than this, a little less Franco ish, but still has those Franco charms in it, you know, 
But yeah, definitely that one or this one I think are two good ones. You know, I mean, people always say Vampiro's Lesbos, but like, to me, that's odd, and we like it, and it's cool and stuff, but to me, I, I think that kind of throws off people, you know, they... Yeah, I find it strange that that's like the one that everyone... Gravitates to. It's the main, like, Franco, that that's, you know, I mean, if you go to Letterboxd, that's the first one that you see. Right. That's everyone's... Mo- Whenever you say, you know, have you seen Franco, they always go, I've, I've seen Vampires Lesbos, and I always kind of wonder why they haven't seen more, and I feel like... Yeah something telling about that <laughs> yeah i know it's, it's like they go to that one first because they think okay this is the most popular or whatever and it kind of used to be venus and furs and then it turned into vampiros lesbos for a long time it's like those were the two that people saw and then after that they couldn't tell you anything you know and they maybe stopped watching so yeah like like i was saying i don't think that's a good choice for non-franco fans it's like once you get the taste you know you want the playful side you want like his his winking into the camera stuff that he does that doesn't really come through in those films, I don't think. I'd, yeah. I'd like, this one is funny because Lena acting like a complete, you know, uh, I don't know what else. Who else can say retired now? I'm just you're not allowed to say retired. Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that when I was reading the text because she is technically retarded. She's mentally yeah, I mean, retarded. Exactly. And, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. It, Lewis dictated a bit about that. Like, what do you, that's how we used to know if people were mentally retarded was we'd call them retarded. Now we're not allowed to say that. So it's right. But it, but it's like, but it's like anything. Not to jump into controversy, here, but it's like, it's like saying the actual phrase, the N word. When you say that, the other word still pops into your mind. So even though you're not saying it, you're still thinking it. So it's the same thing. So why even say it? It's stupid. Yep, exactly. So. You, put that, you put the word in my mind. Yeah, exactly. So then that's how it goes, you know. And you have to. And it, that's how human instinct is. But so yeah, uh, yeah, I, I definitely give this film uh, a mighty thumbs up, thumbs up in Lena, thumbs up in Alice, and thumbs up. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, this is definitely really good. And unfortunately, Franco's not in this film. Uh, now that I think about it, I just realized that. I'm like, oh yeah, he's not in it. But uh, but well, actually, he is in it. You see his reflection in the side of the car, so I guess he is. <laughs> so I guess he is technically in it. So. All right. Well, uh, I think I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up on my end as well. Thank you again. And uh, I will be talking to you on episode 50 coming up. Well, beans. All right. <laughs> Buenas noches. Buenas noches.